Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read in a minute verses 3 and 4. When Edward Gibbons wrote his great history of the Roman Empire, he had a chapter about the spread of Christianity. And he said in his second reason, the reason Christianity was so successful in the Roman Empire was because of the promise of a future life. But the future life depends upon the life of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, that if Christ is not raised, our faith is vain. Our faith is utterly useless. It has no meaning at all. And because of the importance of the resurrection, that was always at the core of Paul's preaching. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen. Now, of the four things Paul mentioned, two are primary, two are corollary. The two primary things he mentioned is that Christ died and that Christ was raised. The corollary things he mentioned is that Christ was buried, that's what you do with a dead person, and that He was seen. That's how we know he was raised. And I've spent last night and this morning in the class talking about the evidence for that. But there is no event more singular in the preaching of the preachers in the book of Acts than the resurrection of Christ. I think the greatest event in history is the cross of Christ. I think the resurrection is the event that proves it to be the greatest event in history. And because of the significance of the resurrection, it's found in almost all of the sermons in the book of Acts. In the 13 sermons in that book, in eight of them, the resurrection is at the core of the lesson that's being taught. In three others, the resurrection is implied or alluded to, such as in Acts 22, when Paul talks about having conversed with Christ. And in two of the 13 sermons... The resurrection isn't very prominent, but there are special reasons for that, such as in Acts 8 when Philip is teaching the eunuch about Christ. But in Acts 2, we have the first apostolic statement of the resurrection in the book of Acts. And I want us to read verses 22 through 32, and I'll try to talk this morning about the significance of what we're reading in these verses. So turn to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to start reading with verse 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rejoice in hope, because you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, 
and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we all are witnesses. Now, what we have in that reading is an argument that consists of a proposition and two proofs. A proposition is a truth claim. It's a statement. It's an assertion that something happened. Now, whether it happened or not, whether we come to believe that it happened or not, depends upon the evidence that's offered, the proof offered in support of it. And so Peter is going to make a truth claim, a proposition, and then he's going to offer two proofs to that Jewish audience that supported the claim that he made. Now, his proposition is this. Jesus of Nazareth, a God-endorsed man, a God who had, a, a man who had God's seal of approval on him. God's imprimatur was upon him. How do we know that? Because God endorsed his ministry with miracles. In first uh, Acts 1, chapter uh, 1, verse 3, Luke talks about how Christ attested himself by many infallible proofs. And there, again, Luke is using that term of certainty. Infallible, no doubt about it. If you want to know what an infallible proof is, look at chapter 4 of Acts, verse 16, where uh, the, the, the Peter makes the statement, um, or where the, uh, excuse me, the Jews make the statement in response to Peter and John, what shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done by them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. An infallible proof is notable. It's a head-turner. It's something you can't ignore. It's something you have to take notice of. It's something that is evident, public, something that wasn't done in a corner. And it's something that is undeniable. Now, the priests, the Jews, had a problem on their hands because they, they've got an infallible proof staring them in the face, and they're not quite sure what to do about it. So Peter, back in Acts 2, makes reference to all of that when he says that Jesus was a God-approved man, and you killed him. You brought in the Romans by the hands of lawless men, men not under God's law, you put him to death, but here's the claim, God raised him up. That is stated as fact. That is as much a fact, the resurrection, as the crucifixion, which nobody denied. Now that's the claim that Peter puts out, and he's going to have to support that claim. And he does so in two ways. In verse 32, let's look into the second way first. I'll save the first way till second. And we'll talk about the second proof first. In verse 32, of which we all are witnesses. God raised him up, and we are witnesses. You know, Christ's public ministry was bookended by two 40-day periods. At the start of his ministry, he spends 40 days in the company of the devil. At the end of his ministry, he spends 40 days in the company of his disciples. 
The first 40-day period prepared him for his ministry. The second 40-day period prepared the disciples for theirs. And the Gospels record ten appearances that Christ made during that 40-day period. Five were on the day of his resurrection. The other five took place after that. Seven of the appearances were in Judea. Three of the appearances were in Galilee. There was no staging that went on. You know, magicians can do some pretty amazing things. But before they do anything amazing, they've got to set the stage. They've got to make sure all the props are set up for people to walk through walls and disappear and saw people in half. They've got to make preparation. Christ appeared to people where there was no preparation made, on places other than a stage, in places where he was least expected. And over that period of 40 days, there may have been other appearances. I I, I think there had to be. But we're only told about the ten. And based on what the disciples, the apostles saw during those 40 days, they became convinced of the resurrection of Christ. They became so convinced. Go back to Acts 4. They became so convinced that after the priest had deliberated, what are we going to do about this? What they decided to do was to intimidate the, the apostles, to threaten them. And so in verse 18, Acts 4. They called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. It wasn't to them a case of how much are we going to be paid for this. They weren't asking to be bribed for their silence. It wasn't a question of what can we say that's going to get us out of trouble. With them, it was a question of right, whether it be right. Listen, it is right to be right. And that's what what Peter and John were concerned with. So convinced were they, not only of what was right, but of what they had seen. They said, we can't keep quiet. We're going to speak. Now, that's certainty, folks. They were convinced of what they had seen. And they preached the resurrection of Jesus. Have you ever wondered why Christ only appeared to his friends? Why did he appear to Peter, but not to Pilate? Why did he appear to Cleopas, but not to Caiaphas? Why didn't he appear to those enemies who had condemned him? I think the obvious reason to that is it would have done no good. When you have closed your heart and mind to truth, enough is never enough. Christ said, don't cast your pearls before swine, and he was going to practice that principle. He had given those men who put him to death more than enough reason for believing his claim, for worshiping him. And they didn't believe him. Let me run down some of the things that he had done as as way of proof, as way of evidence to convince them of who he was. Back in Matthew chapter 8, the very first miracle recorded by Matthew involves a leper. Luke says he is full of leprosy. It was an advanced case. This man's condition was hideous. Leprosy, lepers have a stench about them where you almost can taste the death. That is leprosy. This man came to Christ seeking healing, cleansing. Christ cleansed him. And then Christ says, 
in verse 4. Go show yourself to the priest, offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Christ sent this man as evidence to the priest. Back in, Luke, uh, back in Leviticus 13 and 14. Leviticus 13 is a terrible chapter. It's a diagnostic chapter. Somebody comes down with a skin condition, doesn't clear up. He goes to the priest. Leviticus 13 is a checklist of symptoms that the priest goes through. If the person has all of the symptoms, the diagnosis is leprosy, for which there's no cure. They were the living dead. They were segregated, quarantined. They were abhorred. That was the life they lived. But in Leviticus 14, apparently there were times when leprosy would go into remission because the conditions would clear up. And when that happened, the individual, the sufferer, was to go back to the priest, and the priest went back through the symptoms, and if they were all gone, the man was cleansed, and they had a ceremony they went through. There were two birds in Leviticus 14, two clean birds the priest would take, He would kill one of the birds and pour its blood into a bowl that had water in it, and they'd mix that blood and water together. And then he'd take that second bird and plunge it into the blood of that first bird, and it came out a red bird. You've got a dead bird and a red bird in Leviticus 14. And you know what they did with the red bird? They let it go. Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty. Free at last. Now, if you don't see Jesus in that, go back and reread Leviticus 14. And so, starting with that first leper there in Matthew 8, on a continual basis, there's a line of former lepers finding the priests, going to the temple, cleansed of their leprosy. They're killing lots of birds. They're plunging lots of birds. For three years, Jesus gave evidence to those priests of his supernatural ability. In the Gospel of John, there are seven signs, seven miracles that underscored Jesus as the Son of God. They involve increasing light, starting with the changing water to wine at the wedding feast there in Canaan. Each one is a little brighter than the one before, and finally we get to the last one. A man who has been dead four days is raised from the dead. He stinks. His body saw corruption. And what is the reaction of the Jewish hierarchy to the resurrection of Lazarus? Oh, we've got to kill him again. We've got to put him right back in the grave. Now, that's how men talk when their hearts have been hardened. You know, Matthew talks about some amazing things that happened at the death of Jesus. When he's on the cross, there's three hours of darkness, and as I talked about last night, that's not an eclipse. Prior to the Passover, there were three days of darkness. Christ is on the cross, there is three hours of darkness. Darkness signifying God's judgment. And after the darkness, in both cases, comes the Passover. The killing of the Lamb. And when the Lamb dies at Calvary, There's an earthquake. The veil in the temple is ripped from top to bottom. 
And Matthew tells us that people who had been dead were raised to life and came out of the tombs. Now the priests were in the temple offering the evening afternoon sacrifice at the time that veil was ripped. Josephus talks about the dimensions of that cloth. As thick as a man's hand. Have you ever tried to rip a telephone book in two? And this thing is ripped from top. It towered up there, what, 60 feet? I can't remember. Ripped from top to bottom. Nobody walked up in the bottom and ripped it up. It was from top to bottom. That's God up there ripping that veil. And the earthquake to the pagans was almost always a sign of divine displeasure with something. I mean, that centurion, seeing the darkness, hearing what Christ said, the earthquake, truly, this man's the Son of God. And then those people who were resurrected, who do you think they were? If somebody walked in here this morning and said, um, I'm Samuel Johnson. Now, Samuel Johnson was an 18th century English lexicographer, great man. We've never seen this guy. He comes in and says, I'm Samuel Johnson. You know, he's just some nut who's wandered in off the street. Even if he was Samuel Johnson, we wouldn't recognize him, would we? We've never seen him. We've never met him. We wouldn't know him. But what if Grandpa, who's been dead, my grandpa died in 68. What if Grandpa, who's been dead 50-some years, walks in? Now, that's going to get my attention. And these people went into Jerusalem and were seen by those in Jerusalem. I wonder how many of the 3,000, those gathered on Pentecost and heard Peter, gave him more attention because they had just been visited by Uncle Fred, who had died a couple of years ago. Or Aunt Sally. I mean, there was evidence all over the place. For the deity of Christ, and all the Jewish elite could do was think about covering it up. Now, there's no reason for Jesus to appear to anybody but his friends. The salvation of the world depended upon the preparation of those 12 men. If they could believe that he was raised, if he could prepare them, then there was hope for the world. And that's what he concentrated on during those 40 days. But the apostles said, we are witnesses of these things. But before that proof of eyewitness testimony was offered, back to Acts chapter 2, look at verse uh, 24. This is an amazing statement that Peter makes in verse 24. His proposition is, God raised him up. God loosed the pains of death. Why did God loose the pains of death, Peter? Because it was impossible that death should hold him. Why was it impossible that death should hold him? Because David said, for Peter, because David said something, it was impossible that Christ not be resurrected. The atheist looks at us and says, resurrection is impossible. Peter says, no, it's impossible that he not be raised up. Why do you say that, Peter? Because God's word was behind it. God through David said it, 
But God, through David, said that his son would not see corruption. Therefore, he had to be raised up. God cannot lie. Let God be true and every man a liar. Because of the word of God, Peter was convinced of a divine necessity, which was the resurrection. The Jews believed that the prophets were the spokesmen for God. I mean, Peter would later say... That holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Amos said that the Lord will do what he has revealed to his prophets. It was revealed to David that the Messiah would not see corruption. And Peter says, David wasn't talking about himself. I mean, David died and saw corruption. Turn to Acts 13. Paul can't leave this alone. Paul's got to preach the same thing in Acts 13 that Peter preaches here in Acts 2. Look at verse 35. Acts 13. Paul's also speaking to a Jewish audience. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. In verse 35, Paul quotes the same Psalm 16 prophecy that Peter quotes. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. The resurrection was a divine necessity. And some Jewish scholars realized what David was saying, and they came up with this idea that the body of David was miraculously preserved in some way. Well, you know how you test that? You go out and dig up David's grave. That's how you tell. They they never did that. But Peter and Paul both say that God, because he gave his word, guaranteed the resurrection of his son. Oh, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Listen, uh, we sometimes beat ourselves up too much because we don't pick up on things. Peter couldn't have preached what he preached. Paul couldn't have preached what he preached before the resurrection, simply on the basis of prophecy. John 20, verse 9. You know, when they're hiding there on the day of the resurrection for fear of the Jews, John 20, verse 9 says, As yet they knew not the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Luke tells us they were given a mini-course in messianic prophecy by Christ. And it was only when they saw Christ and heard him explain how all of these prophecies spoke of him that it finally dawned on them what they were talking about. So if we miss stuff in our study, I mean, the apostles miss stuff too. In Luke 16, a rich man in torment Ask Abraham to resurrect somebody. Let there be a resurrection. Let Lazarus go back so that my brothers don't come here. Remember what Abraham said? He said, they've got Moses and the prophets. If they will not hear them, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And the resurrection of Lazarus in John 11, the resurrection of Christ, proved that if God's word isn't enough, 
If we'll not believe on the basis of what God said, then there's probably nothing else that can be done to uh, convince us. And so David said, it is impossible that death should hold Christ. Let me tell you something, and I'll close with this. It's impossible that death should hold us. Go back to John chapter 11. Word has come to Christ that um, Lazarus is sick. This is the only miracle, by the way, where Christ seems to do a little bit of staging. Instead of rushing right to the side of Lazarus and being there for him, Christ goes on about his business. He delays. And it's only when Lazarus is dead that he says, let's go. And Martha hears that Christ is coming. And she goes out and she's a little bit reproachful, maybe, uh, in, in what she says to Jesus. She says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Martha, your brother's going to rise again. Lord, oh, I know. In, in the last day at the resurrection, yeah, I know then we'll all rise. Verse 25, Jesus looks down at Martha. He says, Martha, you're looking at the resurrection. You're looking at the life. I am the resurrection and the life. God raised His Son. And He is going to raise us from the dead back to life. And that's a hard thing to define. Life is a hard thing to define. We typically define it by its symptoms. Living things grow. Uh, Living things may move. We know that the life in us is higher than the life in a tree. Our life is a gift. Christ's life, God's life was innate. He cannot but live. Our life is derived. Paul said in Romans 6 verse 9, Christ having been raised from the dead dies no more. But Paul said something else in Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies by his spirit who dwells in you. Peter says it was not possible that death should hold him because God said he will not see corruption. And it's not possible that death is going to hold us. Because the same God who put himself on the line for his son Jesus Christ has put himself on the line for us. We will live because of the word of God. And we'll live because of the love of God. Have you ever buried someone that you would have done anything you could to have kept them from dying? And if there was some power you had that could bring them back because of your love for them, would you bring them back or leave them dead? 
God's got the power to bring back the ones He loves who have died. His word and His love guarantee our resurrection. And we don't have to wait till that future day when the dead will be raised. Look at John chapter 5, verse 25. I'll close with this. Christ is speaking and He says in verse 25, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is. The hour is coming and now is. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself... So he has given to the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Yeah, there's going to be a future resurrection, but there can be a resurrection right now. The hour is coming, and it's now. If you want to be raised from the deadness of sin, because of the power of God, because of the blood of Christ, you can be raised right now. Um, in the old state books in Paris, you can still look through them. And in those books, there is page after page that has at the top of the page the name of a town, and underneath the name of the town, line upon line upon line upon line, of the taxes owed by the people in the town to the king. On one page in one of those books, at the top is the name of the village, Dolremi, and all of the lines of the taxes underneath. But written across that page, in red ink, are the words, free for the maid's sake. Doremi was the home of Joan of Arc. And because of her service to the nation, I think it was Charles II, asked her, what do you want? Tell me what you want. She says, I want my townsfolk not to have to pay taxes. And for a couple of centuries, that town paid no taxes. And I read that story and I thought of another book. Filled with pages, and at the top of one of the pages is my name. And underneath my name, line after line after line of a debt I owe that I cannot pay. A debt I owe to the king. But written across that page, not in red ink, but in blood, are the words, free for the son's sake. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Because of the blood, because of the sacrifice, because of the resurrection that proves it all to be so, you can be raised to life this day. If you're here and need to repent and claim Christ as your Lord and be baptized, we hope you'll act now and come while together we stand and while we sing.